Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Jose Valim has concluded his Advent of Code live streaming. So you can check out all of those that have already been recorded on his Twitch channel. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And honestly, I can't blame him for not wanting to go all the way up to Christmas because, you know, there's family, it's holiday time. But I think it's awesome that he spent as much of his time sharing that and demonstrating the power of Livebook and also helping people learn some cool new things about Elixir and get excited about it. One of the interesting things was on his last stream, he shared a new language proposal that he was putting in for Elixir. And maybe, David, you can tell us about that one. There's a new proposal. Now, again, just it's a proposal. So what we talk about here may not be what ends up happening in any form or in the form that we're going to talk about here. Currently, there is a for comprehension, and it has the reduce option to reduce the values that come out of the generators into an accumulator. Today, this as it's written now, it's a little bit more restrictive because it only accumulates into a single value. Normally, this would be something like a map, whereas the proposal allows for multiple values to be accumulated. So imagine you wanted to, to count the items out of the generators and sum them, for example. So the proposal adjusts a little bit of the mutation for those accumulators. So it's a little bit more unique in that you can initialize them when starting the for comprehension. And it reads a little bit more like an imperative language. For example, you can say like for, you know, let X equals one, and that'll initialize X to be one. And then you do your normal for loop, but then you have to return a specific shape for those values to carry on to the next loop. There's two options out of this that I'm seeing uh, out of the proposal. There's like a a for let that will reduce and map the values out of the generators. But there's also a for reduce that would only return the reduction. The for comprehension loop does currently have a reduce option now. So if this proposal were accepted, we'd have a more powerful construct around reductions in a for comprehension. So the current reduce option would be deprecated. Anyway, so it'll be interesting to see how this evolves. It's already evolved once. I'm really interested to see how this lands. Community feedback has been good so far. Next up, a pretty cool tweet that we saw, and I'll just put a note up front that I haven't fact-checked this, but since it's very pro-Elixir and Erlang, we'll share it anyways. It says, 90% of all internet traffic goes through Erlang-controlled nodes with Cisco alone shipping 2 million devices a year that use Erlang. And we just thought that was pretty cool. And, and Mark kind of called it the invisible usage where you don't really see that it's happening, but it's behind the scenes there powering a whole lot of infrastructure. Next up, the machine learning working group has worked on many projects this year, and there have been many updates on the following projects. Among those include Explorer, Livebook, SciData, NX, and Axon. And so the Machine Working Group is part of the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, and we're having a link to a document where they're going over some of those accomplishments and kind of calling out the progress and exciting things that are developing there just in this year. And as we reach the end of a year, you know there's going to be a lot more of these year-end reviews, and this is one of those. It just kind of helps to summarize, like, hey, there's a lot of really cool stuff here, and if you are interested in helping out with the Machine Learning Working Group, you can certainly join and contribute to all of those efforts. A shout out to Dockyard for sponsoring NX and Axon. 
We saw a tweet by Sean Moriarty where he pointed out that Dockyard has been sponsoring Sean's work on NX, Axon, and the rest of the NX ecosystem moving forward. So that's very exciting. Yeah, and thanks to the efforts of the Elixir community, GitHub's syntax highlighting now uses the tree sitter grammar for Elixir. This is really exciting. Tree sitter, in case you haven't heard of it, is an incremental parser for languages. So it, it kind of produces this AST out of the syntax. What this is primarily used for, at least in GitHub's scenario here, is syntax highlighting. I've been using it in NeoVim for quite a while too, and that gives you special powers too. Like since it does know about the AST, for example, you can configure movements in it to like select this block, which is pretty nice. And it's informed by the AST that tree sitter outputs. So what does this really mean for Elixir though, that GitHub seems to be using it? Quinn Wilton, friend of the show, gave some context, and I agree. So we'll we'll say it here too, which is uh, first, this might mean that the Elixir tree sitter grammar is now considered production ready by GitHub, which means that we may eventually see Elixir picked up by their semantics team as a supported language. And that's important because they do a lot of static analysis, like stack graphs from the last week. Other tooling might begin targeting the grammar now to uh, things like semgrep, rely on tree sitter under the hood. So mature implementation of a grammar for Elixir is a prerequisite for further integrations with other modern analysis tools. And you know, lastly, this, this simplifies the development of new Elixir-specific tools like linters or maybe even language servers. I'm not sure about R specifically, but... Uh, because it won't need to rely so much on hand-rolled parsers or rely on a working Elixir installation, you know, to leverage uh, parsing. So it's this whole separate tool chain. Anyway, but this this is all really exciting use cases. I'm probably missing some other other use cases here, but TreeSitter has been really beneficial for me personally. But now that GitHub's picking it up, I'm loving it. So I think there's a couple of folks that I know we can thank. Jonathan Klosko for Livebook fame, but there's also Mike Davis, I believe. There was another uh, tree sitter parser that I'm sure this took a lot of inspiration from. So big shout out to all the folks that were helping out with the tree sitter elixir parser. And just a quick shout out to Quinn Wilton for helping give some context to what those tree sitter changes meant. So appreciate that. Yeah. And next up, Mikhail Muscala let us know that Jason 1.3 was released. So Jason is the very popular and commonly used JSON parsing library for serializing JSON. So we have a link to the change log for this, but there's a couple interesting things that were changed. So one is it added the ability to have an ordered object struct. Normally, when JSON gets serialized into a map, map does not have ordered keys. The keys might jump around and be in different places, maybe alphabetical, but they're not deterministic in the way that they were parsed out. And so this gives an option to say, no, I want them in this order, both for deserializing and serializing. And also, it supports decoding floats to decimals by passing in an option. And the big one I thought was really interesting is that there's a new sigil J, lowercase and uppercase J, sigil module for making JSON literals in your code so that you can just have a blob of JSON code. Part of that libraries adding more syntax help will be interesting to see in things like this, where JSON or XML or you know HTML, we already have that. But uh, JSON's another very common thing that we'll see. That's really cool. Yeah. And if I remember right, one of Elixir 1.13's features allows like a formatter plugins and it can look at uh, sigils for that. So if you have the J sigil, you might be able to like plug in a JSON formatter or even highlighters in there. It could be interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I feel like when I'm doing testing or something and I need to like mock 
JSON blobs. It's always just a string and then it has to be encoded or decoded or whatever. And I guess you could just skip one of those steps, right? And just inline it right there with the sigil. So thinking about the ordered object thing, like, first of all, is it right to assume a JSON object is absolutely ordered in an API sense? Maybe that's not the right thing to do. But when it gets encoded into a map, I, I think there's a rule in Erlang. Oh, I might get this wrong, but it's I think if it's under like 13 keys or something, it is ordered. But uh, after 13 keys, I think it uh, changes the way it stores that object memory and it loses order at that point. So this JSON ordered object, I think, bypasses that little uh, quirk. One of the benefits of that is just if I'm deserializing something, working on it, and then serializing it back out, I wouldn't want it to necessarily lose all of its ordering. Not that the order is important, but it communicates things. Things are grouped together. It's just you know something as a developer who's working with the JSON, it might be nice. Yeah, maybe you haven't worked with some of the APIs that I have, but order does seem to matter sometimes. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't, I'm not sure that it should. When It shouldn't, yeah. <laughs> and last up, a conference update. The lineup for the Lambda Day speakers has been released. This conference will be in February 2022, the 10th and the 11th. There's going to be over 50 speakers and four different tracks. And it sounds like they're going to be live streaming for participants all over the world. So we'll drop a link in the show notes to that conference website. They describe this one as a hybrid edition. So I think there will also be a physical component there. So it'll be cool to see. Now, just as a heads up, Lambda Days is not an Elixir specific conference. Elixir is represented usually, but it is a general functional language thing. So a lot of people from different languages and, and communities are represented there. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today for our special guest, we're being joined by Nathan Wilson. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to this because you did a fun project and you just put it out there and announced it. And it was a globally distributed editing music, collaborative, Phoenix, pub sub, all that kind of cool stuff. It was like just really cool because just seeing people play with this. But we wanted to kind of dig in beyond just like the tech demo aspect of it and understand some of what went into it and more of your story about how this came into being and some of the problems you had to solve to make this happen. So I'm looking forward to that. But before we jump in there, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Hi, everyone. My name is Nathan. I am a programmer. I actually live in Tokyo but I'm originally from Vancouver in Canada. Kind of to explain why I'm here, well, I'm, I'm actually half Japanese and I've always grown up wanting to speak Japanese. And I knew that if I wanted to do that, I needed to go to Japan while my family was still here, my, my grandma's still here. So I kind of made the change, moved from Vancouver to Japan, picked up the language. And now I work as a Rails developer, actually, for, I guess, a really quite Japanese company that deals with financial institutions and connecting companies in Japan. It's a very uh, specific Japan problem that we're trying to trying to solve that kind of relates to the way the economy works here. But without getting like too far into that, it, it's mostly a, a Rails job. And kind of one of the cool perks about that is that we have these monthly study sessions. And so we have different guests coming in and joining and we give presentations and actually 
Kihiro Matsumoto-san, who's the creator of Ruby, going to study sessions once a month. So I've actually had a kind of a cool opportunity to present different Elixir things to him. I did a Nerves. I did Live View, obviously. And I've kind of had a chance to put Elixir projects in front of him just to see what he thinks, which has been kind of a, a cool perk of working in Japan. Beyond work was uh, in electrical engineering with acoustics and audio. So music is kind of something that's always been part of my life or something that I've been thinking about. That's cool. I did not know you'd had a chance to show Matt's stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's actually, Matt's is a uh, really nice guy. It's interesting to show Matt's things because I, I want to say more than I can, but I, uh, there's a language barrier. We do everything in Japanese. So, but Matt's is actually very uh, aware of what's going on in the Elixir community. I presented Live View. He presented the Ruby version, which I forget what it's called now. And he's always got really insightful little tidbits on like why he chose the do end block or why he chose these little details. Maybe a cool perk doesn't necessarily affect my actual programming ability. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, the acronym MINISWAN, right? Matt's is nice, so we are nice. And that's how the Ruby community is you know generally carry themselves is that they're nice they're pleasant to talk to they're not judgmental i know that's not universally true in any community but but i've always liked that slogan i remember when when coming into the elixir community we didn't have that slogan that you know jenna swan you know like jose is nice and so we are nice we could have that though because he is nice (laughs) it's it's still true yeah Uh, we just didn't make an acronym about it (laughs) just the j silent yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's pretty cool to be able to like talk with mats and like share some of the interesting things that's happening with elixir you always kind of wonder what these other you know language creators think about what's going on uh, you know outside of their own community and what kind of inspiration to take from languages because what, what's interesting there is mats is kind of a spiritual grandparent in a way uh, to, <laughs> to elixir just because it's syntax being so inspired by ruby originally. So that was a credit to Matt's and his work there. But I'd love to turn this more towards Elixir and just learn a little bit more about you, Nathan, and how did you come to Elixir and how long you've been working with it? So my first experience with Elixir was actually at my previous job when I was back in Canada. We were a Rails shop, but we had a app that was written in Elixir. I believe it was for mostly for sending texts and responding to shift workers who needed to be notified of new tech, new shifts. And it was an Elixir app in any case. And I kind of wanted to work on it. And then eventually we went to ElixirConf 2017 and I got really into it. And I read Elixir in Action by Sasha Yurik. And that just changed my mind about everything. And then ElixirConf 2018, and I just continued and continued to contribute to projects when I could, make my own projects in Elixir when I could, kind of be the Elixir evangelist, I guess. Since leaving that, I've continued to make a variety of apps in Elixir and try to keep myself somehow in the community despite not being able to work in Elixir. I have a couple you know, projects on the side that I'm working with friends and stuff like that. It's been, I guess, now it's 2021, it's been five years of just nonstop, you know, people have to tell me to shut up, you know, talking about Elixir. This project was kind of a good chance to try a lot of the things that when I first started Elixir, I think a lot of people tell you about all the good distributed things and all the cool features that are kind of included out of the box with Elixir. And I haven't really had a chance. I mean, I'm always making a Phoenix app or something, a web app that I run on a single server. So trying something distributed and trying something, I don't know, that's kind of something that I really wanted to 
try now. And it felt like maybe it was the right time to try that. So that leads us into this project that you created that you called GEMS, G-E-M-S. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. So dear listener, we have a link to this in the show notes. You have to go play with this, but we'll talk a little bit more about what's actually going on. So you have a, a good idea of what you're seeing and interacting with, but maybe just tell us what is this? So when someone goes to the link that we're going to show in the show notes, what are they going to find there? I encourage listeners to go try it. It's hard to describe, but if you're not a musical person, you might not know what a, a sequencer is, um, but GEMS stands for Globally Editable Music Slash Matrix Sequencer. One common instrument that you find a lot of places for controlling music software or whatever is just this matrix grid. And in the traditional sequencer model, you can imagine that every row of the grid is a different note. So let's say the bottom of the grid is a C and it moves its way up, maybe on a scale, or maybe it's not on a scale. It's really up to what you're using. And then you have basically a clock, I guess maybe that's the easiest way for analogy for programmers, like a clock that would cycle through the columns of the grid and play those columns sequentially, and then kind of loops on itself. But GEMS is kind of a music project that I kind of wanted to just kind of an experiment to see what could I do with audio and with Elixir and a lot of cool tech that I've always kind of wanted to try. I think that everybody's probably played with one of these at some point in their life, right? You have like a cool little iPad app or something where you're you're clicking the squares and like trying to make something nice come out of the speakers and failing miserably because I myself don't know much about music and can never make it sound good. So I just make designs and sometimes the designs sound good and some of the boxes make drum sounds and some of them make keyboard sounds and you're like, oh, this is so fun, except now it's distributed. There's so many options for something like like that. I mean, a lot of instruments that you get, you can really boil them down to just triggering samples. So, or a sample being a clip of audio, I guess. So a sequencer is a good example. There's lots of other, I mean, a MIDI keyboard or whatever. But in this case, I kind of wanted to choose something that everyone maybe wouldn't understand immediately. But when you see a grid, when you see like a matrix like that, you don't want to click it and kind of see what happens. It's the simplest digital instrument I could think of that everyone could kind of immediately click and understand what was going on. What I like about it is it does have all the notes are in a scale. So in, as opposed to a, like a piano, where it's very easy to make something discordant and sound terrible, as we're learning piano, we all do that and it just sounds awful. But like this, it's like, it's very easy to just have a scale that sounds pleasant and have it go up and, and just interactively make kind of some melodies and things. One really big goal for me with this was that anyone could use it and kind of make something. I wanted everyone to just have the experience of writing music, just even the simplest, what three notes that work together. So yeah, everything is locked to a scale and you can change that scale and you can change the key of the scale. But yeah, it was mostly an attempt to make sure that no matter who you were, you could make something that kind of sounded, I don't know, I guess, comfortable or, or easy to listen to. It's a tool, for me at least, to see the relationships also between different scales. It's a very easy way to visualize without getting into too much music theory, but like C major and A minor are actually the same notes. I think it's interesting personally that you can have the exact same notes, but in a different order and it feels totally different. And you can see this like grid just be transposed to another key or another scale. There's that idea that like we're just rearranging frequencies and I feel totally different this is really happy or this is really sad. I mean, even for the people who are more interested in actually 
maybe who have some experience making music think there's there's something there too if you try it. So let's talk a little bit more about the actual project. So I understand this is open source, right? People can go and check out the source code right now. Yeah, it is definitely open source. I welcome people to fork it or to contribute to it if you have an idea. It is quite a design specific. I really kept try to keep the design very simple. So I'm not looking to necessarily add buttons everywhere, but there definitely have been some really good ideas from people on Twitter or various places of things that they would like to have added. You know, I guess I should explain that when you go to the sequencer, the grid itself is everyone can share the grid. I guess that's what, that's what makes this project a little bit special is that anyone who's connected to the grid can edit it and see the edits from other people. And it's kind of updated in real time. And that applies to the matrix specifically. And then at the bottom, there's a bunch of audio controls that are local to your machine or your device. I thought about making those global as well, but in doing so, I think you invite trolls to really mess up with your audio and change the waveforms and <laughs> go 100% on the delay or the reverb and create a feedback loop or you know whatever. So I kept those local. So there's kind of local state and a global state. And the global state is sort of distributed. I mean, the reason it really needed to be distributed was with an instrument, with any device, and the same applies to games, but especially with instruments, your audio sensory system can detect changes within 30 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds. You know, the, that delay is awkward. And I kind of wanted to make sure that everyone had a real-time experience that no matter where you were in the world, you could enjoy it, I guess, in the same way. So when someone's looking at the page, and seeing the grid there, up in the top right corner, there's a little number and a little person icon, which indicates how many people are live looking at the same thing that you are right then. Like we were just playing with it. And, and that was one of the things David hadn't quite picked up on. He was like, what's going on? Because like, we were, we were like, Kate and I were messing with it and, <laughs> and doing things. So that, that was fun. Since you're clearing all of Cade's hard work. Yeah, we, lear- we learned that the hard way, right? I made like this really cool wave and David just rolled in and cleared it. <laughs> well, okay, I came in like a wrecking ball, as some would say. It's been so interesting to see the people who interacted with it and how they interacted with it. And some people just draw lines, like straight lines. Some people try to fill the whole grid as if it's just like a, a bingo board or whatever. Some people really take their time. You can see them editing notes and removing notes. I found that part to just be so fascinating. Sometimes it's pure chaos and sometimes you know people just draw an X or they just draw a happy face or whatever. That when it worked, I was I was so happy. And and I mean we can get into this more as well, but like presence works distributed. I guess the the user count that we're talking about is Phoenix Presence and it worked distributed out of the box with no effort. And that was such a wow moment for me. I was really not sure what was going to work and uh, was satisfied that it did. Yeah, so maybe go through a little bit of the architecture, like just how this is put together. If you were to just use the grid on your own, let's say you had a locally hosted version of it, then it would just be a Phoenix server, a live view app, and there was a grid and you can adjust and make noises. And well, I'll talk about how the noises are made afterwards, but it's a Phoenix app. And then in order to make it collaborative, say other people on your network, or you just had a single server somewhere, I used PubSub, Presence, all the goodies of Phoenix. And then I guess the next stage is not just a single server, making it to multiple machines. And so that's the distributed side and that's libcluster and Fly.io and some other things. But at its core, it's a live view app with 
presence and tracker, I guess there's just presence and pub sub. And then the f- actual sounds themselves, the actual noises themselves come from a library called Tone.js, which I encourage anyone to check out. It has tons of features. This whole thing would not have been possible without Tone.js. So I have to give like so much credit, but I'm creating no- sounds on the browser using, I guess, the web audio API, which is baked into Tone.js. And Tone.js, you can choose from a bunch of different instruments. You can do granular synthesis. You can actually trigger samples. So I could have provided MP3s or WAV files and you could have triggered those, which is a common thing you would do with the sampler anyway. It could have made it basically a drum machine or something else. Tone.js really does a lot. It's a really cool library and I encourage people to check it out. It works quite intuitively, at least from if you've ever done audio before because you, you define components like let's say you define a piano and then you define a reverb pedal and you define a delay pedal and then you have a compressor and then now you want to listen to it. You literally define the de- define those as variables and then like you would in a physical actual device, you connect the piano to the reverb, the reverb to the delay, the delay to the compressor and then the compressor to your output, which would be speakers or whatever. The code is just kind of matches the physical representation in a sense. So it's actually quite a fun library. That's very cool. I uh, ended up having to turn it off because it is a lot of fun to play with. And I started playing with it and getting really into it and started not listening to what people were saying. So it's a very fun little tool. And the library looks really nice, too. There's some really cool sound libraries coming out lately that are just a lot of fun to play with. There's a bunch of stuff out there. There's a bunch of projects, you know, common uh, DAW or, uh, let's say, music editing program like Ableton and some of these tools are being moved to the browser now, actually. And there's a bunch of apps or companies out there that write audio plugins or audio software in, I guess, I guess they write in something and then they convert it to Wasm. And then I, you kind of get a performance of an audio tool. And kind of some of these APIs, I'm sure the ones that Tone.js is using are kind of tangentially related to that. And then there's also something, well, it's only supported by Chrome. There's a MIDI, a web MIDI API. I don't know if you guys know what MIDI is, but... MIDI is just a music protocol that's commonly used to connect instruments. It's universal, at least this space. It's really old, but it's universal. I believe Chrome, Safari does not. Maybe Firefox supports the web media API. So there's a bunch of kind of cool, random little music audio related APIs out there that are like actually natively supported by the browsers. And you can really like literally plug a, a MIDI keyboard, I guess, into your computer and play something in the web browser, which is kind of cool. This is kind of branching off what we were supposed to be talking about, but I one time saw a piano tutorial web app, this digital piano behind me. I just plugged it into my laptop and went to the app on Chrome and it could see the keys and it like kind of walked me through like a little piano tutorial. And I was like, this is getting really cool. Guitar tuners, there's all these little cool things. Just like, oh, that makes sense. We just do that with a web app or whatever. And it looks like you've done things with this too. Like... Did you create a game that messes with this web MIDI API? I guess I have a, I have a proclivity for audio projects. I used to make music a lot, and I used to be in lots of bands, and used to do lots of audio, well, music-related things. And then I kind of dropped it for many years because I really got tired of the whole production process of it. You mean you end up writing a song in an hour, and then you spend a month just adjusting knobs until it sounds right to to make it good enough to release it. it became less creative and more about the production. I got really tired of that. Just it wasn't fun anymore. Like at one point this was fun and I just feel 
so exhausted staying up trying to just get uh, certain parts to of the song to match together. And I, I just, I gave up. And so flash forward to the pandemic, when it started, I had, was all alone in Japan here, had a lot of time. And so I bought a synthesizer and kind of because of that, I got really back into music again. For me, it, was, it made me so happy to just find something that I could enjoy, like a, like a long lost friend a little bit, something like, oh, I haven't done this in a while, but I kind of know my way around it. Kind of through that, I ended up kind of exploring, well, what can I do with this MIDI controller now that I also have a programming skills and, you know, lo and behold, there's a web MIDI API. So I've made a Tetris game for it. I've made some visualization tools. So like when you're playing music, the MIDI that comes out of your keyboard, you kind of have this visual experience using MIDI just with your browser, because it's always hard to plug into a TV or I don't know. There's the, I just thought like, well, this thing is here and it's so easy. I know JavaScript. I think we all know a little bit of JavaScript. You don't have to be super smart to figure it out. I mean, I ended up even writing a MIDI mapping library. So I, I have a, this synthesizer called an OPZ and the signals that come out of it, if it's a 128, what does that mean? What, so you have to sort of have a, a lookup table, let's say. So I wrote that as well. And that's kind of gained some traction. Music is very auditory, obviously, but there can also be a visual component. Maybe it induces some creativity or just helps pass the time when you're writing stuff. But I want to be able to make audio things with my programming abilities. And it just seemed like a really cool way to kind of explore that. I think it's interesting to add a whole nother sensory level experience to a web application, right? Normally sound is not part of it as, as the traditional web apps that we write often. I am curious though about any challenges that you encountered because with that, we think our Phoenix web apps, our live view apps, they're typically not used in this way as like a, a sequencer with timings and musical notes. So I'm sure there was some stretching and struggle with making this work. So maybe you can share some insight into what went on there. I hope everyone here's watched Chris McCord's presentation for this year at uh, ElixirConf. He talked a lot about Phoenix Live View and some of the new stuff that's in there. And there's JavaScript callbacks and there's all this cool stuff. But there are still things that Phoenix isn't made for or can't do, especially in the case of something like this, triggering the sounds, the actual instruments that kind of had to happen on the JavaScript. And I tried as much as possible to write minimal JavaScript file. I wanted to, as much as possible, delegate the responsibility to Phoenix and only the things that were really necessary that I write in JavaScript. So if you open the project and look into the app.js file, that's all the JavaScript I wrote for the entire project. And it's mostly callbacks to trigger audio, maybe adjust tempo. I mean, that's an interesting problem I could talk about, but I originally created the app where the clock of the sequencer, the one, two, three, four, the clock of it was actually triggered on the live view end where I would just have an incrementing counter. Because I guess one of the live view basic examples is a seconds counter. So I kind of assumed, ah, so this must be totally fine. This must work. And it did work when I worked it, when I did it locally, it worked fine. Everything was on sync. And then I started an Angrock server to kind of show to a friend. And when he connected to it, the timing was all off. It would skip. It wouldn't be one, two, three, four. It'd be one, two, three, four. And I looked into it. I did a bit of time measurements. And I found that the WebSocket connection actually varied by about 50, sometimes 100 milliseconds. It really depends on where you are. I mean, I'm in Japan. My friend was in Vancouver. So there's an even greater lag there. But it kind of occurred to me that I guess live view is fast or WebSockets are fast, but they do have varying latency. And I couldn't rely on that latency for 
an instrument which needs to be exact. So that's something that I eventually had to move over to the front end. And in doing so, I had to do some trickery with LiveView has something, I forget what the actual feature is called, but something to do with not watching something, not watching something update. Yeah, to ignore updates because you have some JavaScript, it's going to mutate the nodes underneath. So you tell Phoenix to just leave this alone. Yeah. I had to do that a little bit because I wanted a visual representation of which column was currently being looked at. So which one is active, let's say, since the clock is now on the front end, that component has to happen on the front end as well, where I just, I literally just add a class to a column, but I had to make it do some trickery to get the very top block of the column, which is actually a circle to not be watched by live view and to adjust the CSS accordingly. And then CSS trickeries to say, well, if the top first child is active, then the siblings will also, you know, be highlighted or, but I would say I'm surprised at what live view could do and modals works is, you know, something that Chris talked about in uh, his presentation for the most part, everything actually worked really well. One thing that did, I thought I would have to do in JavaScript that I actually got to do in Phoenix was there's a graph on gems for ASDR. It's basically the attack, decay, sustain, and Resonance, that's the wrong word, but I thought I would have to do that in JavaScript, but actually you can render SVGs really easily with LiveView, like a graph that changes in real time as you turn knobs or, or whatever. I ended up just implementing that as a LiveView component and it was really easy. It kind of reminded me of, you know, when LiveView was first announced in 2007, 2018, and they showed that what was it? It was like a colorful orange flame or something like that. It's like this, 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 it was that feeling. It's like, this is what I thought live view was going to kind of turn into. People were going to be making all crazy sorts of art projects or whatever. Certain things like that, I thought I would have to implement in front end and actually made more sense to do it in live view. And I got to write it in Elixir and I got to do all the math in Elixir and that made it a lot easier as well. I think it's interesting that you've mentioned the timings, right? Because the human ear is attuned to like uh, three millisecond differences. It, it perceives that. And it's so like that becomes super important when you're talking about this auditory experience. So that is interesting. I appreciate that challenge that you had to deal with that. The Maybe the original intent was that everybody in the world who connected and used the app would actually be on the same clock if that was even possible. But when you load the app, I guess it just starts locally. The metronome or the clock will just start for you. So yeah, compared to your friend and the other, you know, across the street or whatever, there's actually technically a difference because that clock, that clock is, I guess, local to you. Also, I guess the tempo of the grid is also one of the local controls anyway. It's not something that people can control globally as, as again, like another way to maybe stop trolls. Man, a bunch of spoilers here. We all thought that we were like listening to the same thing at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> But all that makes a lot of sense, though, because I, I imagine to get the entire world on one clock is a hard problem to have, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and to solve. So that makes total sense. Put that down at the browser, you know, allow some of the controls to be at the browser and control some of the global state, like which boxes are highlighted. If there are some other controls you can put into global state, like the resonance and all that, then maybe that makes sense, too. But this is like very well implemented, it sounds like. I don't know how you would do it otherwise. I thought about this, like in a world that wasn't Elixir and I didn't have distributed tools so readily available. How would I play music with my friends in Vancouver or wherever, or around the world in Amsterdam or whatever? Because when I did try it on a single server hosted on my own machine, so even worse, NGROC signal, whatever, 500 milliseconds, you know, huge lag. It just wasn't even really usable. I had an excuse to do distributed, which is something that I've always kind of wanted a reason to actually do. 
maybe as programmers or let's say North American programmers, we live in this sort of bubble that we think our apps can just run on New York and LA or, and that's good enough. Everyone can, yeah, some people get a hundred milliseconds leg, but you deal with it and you only have to make one replica, or even if you make multiple replicas, they don't have to be connected in any way. But in this specific case, I had finally found an excuse to make something where it was necessary to actually have that responsivity in real time. I'd love to hear more about how you deployed this and hosted this. You said you did it on fly.io. So fly supports multiple regions. How many regions did you deploy this to? So I deployed this to 10 regions. I think initially I was deployed it to five, but I was a little bit worried what would happen with deploying in the US, what the traffic would be. So I tried to spread it as much as possible. I felt like that would be, that's where the biggest Elixir base is, let's say. In my mind, actually, that's probably totally wrong. So this is going a little bit aside, but I tried to figure out how many web socket connections could a server even handle, like a basic, say, file, basic server, doing the math there and using Observer to sort of measure how much does the WebSocket take up in memory? How much does performance go up? And I kind of found that one WebSocket would take mm, five megabytes. Maybe that's even pushing it. Maybe it was lower than that, three megabytes. In a safe range, I could maybe have 50 connections, no problem, no memory issues. Elixir, theoretically, given infinite memory, can handle all those connections. That's not a problem. But there is a memory cap. And once you hit that memory cap, it crashes. So I ended up just deploying it, one in Japan for myself, one in Australia, because I have a coworker there, one in Amsterdam, and then a, kind of a scattered around one in London, though Amsterdam, London, quite close. Be interesting to see if you were in France, which one you would connect to. But yeah, this is kind of something that, and I'm sure you can speak to this, but Fio offers very readily, very easily. It's super easy to just scale servers across the world. You can do it in different patterns, but in my case, I just had one in every single region that I could sort of put it out in. This whole thing is possible, yes, because of Elixir and the Beam, and we all know that stuff. But I also want to give credit to Bitwalker, who wrote LibCluster. That is the real magic sauce to this whole thing. And it's very easy to use. I first created a network, distributed network locally, started five machines just to see if everything would work. It worked with LibCluster. And then if you go to Fio's documentation, they have just a single config that you need to put in your runtime. Very easy. Drop it in. Fio apps come with a region environment flag. If you needed to, you could distinguish which region it's in. But in any case, configuring a libcluster locally, then runtime config, push, deploy, and then it works. That was the craziest thing about this whole thing was I went from single server on my own machine to libcluster, multiple nodes, to Fio across the world in an evening, basically. I was kind of blown away at how easy that was. Contribute is supposed to be hard. I just assumed that there would be connection issues or syncing issues or or whatever. Some of that was maybe solved by some of the ways I tried to store state in the app. I guess it's worth saying that this app doesn't have an RDS database or anything. That every All the state is stored within the app or within the, the cluster, let's say. Surprisingly, it ran smoothly. But definitely Fly.io made that part seamless. Yeah, you got to give big props to Fly because they make distribution really easy. Plus, they have docs that make it really easy and always good times every time I use their platform. And they're so pretty. Well, Nathan, this has been really fun. I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to share anything else before we have to close because we're coming up to time. Are there any particular 
tips or words of advice you'd have for someone else who's not necessarily wanting to recreate this, but just on a similar journey with Elixir or Live View or whatever you had through this experience? I would just point out to everyone that the distribute is actually really easy on Elixir. I guess I knew that, but I wanted to see it from my own eyes and doing it with Fly.io, you can do it in production very cheaply and you can just try it and see what happens. So I really encourage anyone to go out there and do something similar. I also think it's really important for the community to create apps that aren't just chat apps, that aren't just crowd apps. Like I wanted to see what else is possible with LiveView. I've just seen so many tutorials for sort of the same thing just for every new version of LiveView. Gems uses saves state across the cluster. I don't use a database or anything like that. There are lots of tools out there. I'm, I'm going to name drop a little bit, but I looked at... I guess the ETS tables, this is what I've looked first, and that's not distributed. So there's Amnesia. So you could get good tools for saving across clusters there. And the latency was maybe going to be an issue. So I looked into PG2 and PG, and these are kind of talked about in Sasha Yurik's book as well, which are good tools to look into. PG2 has since been named to PG, and PG stands for process groups. I was going to implement the state with PG, but I ended up deciding, well, might as well use something that's more battle-tested. So let's see what Phoenix has in Phoenix Tracker. Next level is Phoenix Presence, which is really just Phoenix Tracker with nice helper methods. And then if you actually look at the Presence documentation, the default adapter for Presence is PG anyway. So I kind of ended up using PG in the end. But what people should understand is all these tools, channels, Presence, PubSub, et cetera, they work across a cluster out of the box. I didn't have to invent anything. And I like was shouted with glee when it worked. It just it, it didn't have to configure anything really. And it works and it's fast, I guess. And there are a bunch of different approaches to saving state that I encourage people to look into. You can save a global gen server. I went with the PG route, which is state on every single one of your nodes. There's so many approaches to there. I was kind of having this conversation with a friend about like why Elixir and why why is distributed so important anyway? But I think because with Elixir, you have the choices and they're all quite easy. And trying to do this with any other programming language, to my knowledge, to at least from my experience, I wouldn't have so many options and it would be very difficult to implement. And I really encourage people to just, as a fun side experiment, try to create something in a cluster, distributed, use nerves, use whatever. That's kind of one of the projects I thought about making. Maybe it was the next step would be a nerves cluster where every nerves thing was uh, connected and you had some giant instrument or whatever. I love the idea that you shared here, like really taking something that we don't usually see, like in live view and just showing, hey, how far can I go with this? Just kind of push that boundary and say, this actually works and here's how I did it. That's the cool part, right? Like it's, it's not just, yeah, you made it work. It's like, here's how I did it. It's open source. You can go check it out. You can play with it. With that, are you looking for any contributions or do you have any plans for the future? Please take a look at the code. I made some cool optimizations in there, but I'm also totally welcome to new suggestions and even just feature suggestions, or you can create them yourself. And I would love to even see new designs of the grid or for those who use the original grid when it was released, I, there's a 32 by 32 grid now available to you if you are in private mode in the gems thing, not private mode in your browser. I would love to either improve upon gems or even just start a whole new project of like just a whole new series of kind of cool music projects. Let's even say something more basic, like an art project. And if anyone wants to contribute on that or has an idea or has questions on how I implement my idea, please 
by all means, contact me or, or I didn't reinvent the wheel or it wasn't rocket science. The repo itself is quite straightforward and easy to understand. So please take a look and let me know if there are any obvious bugs or just ways that I can improve things. If people do want to get in touch with you or follow you online or just follow the project, where's the best place to go for that? The bottom of the GEMS project, there is a link to my Twitter. And the GEMS project is hosted on my own website, which has my email somewhere if you really want to find it. Hit me up on any network and let's chat about Elixir. And we'll have links to those in the show notes. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. (laughs) 